If you'll take your copy of scripture and turn the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna begin a new series uh, for the first of the year called New Life. And uh, Philip's song really led really well into that. And one of the lines in the song says, I'm not who I used to be. And what I wanna explore over the next several weeks is what it means to have new life in Christ. What happens when we become believers in Jesus and we are given this new life? What happens to us? What happens for us? What does discipleship really look like? We use a lot of terms like born again, saved, uh, disciple, follower, all these things. What do those really mean? Because I think when we start to think about new life, the question comes up, why do I need a new life? The life I have is just fine. Why do I need a new life? For a lot of people, they don't understand the central teaching of the gospel that we need to have a brand new life given to us. For a lot of people, what we think uh, the Christian life is, is God uh, making some minor behavior changes in our life, right? We, we need help and stop doing some of the things that aren't helpful or good to us. We just need a little bit of behavior change, behavior modification. Well, if that's what you think Christianity is, that's not the gospel. Sometimes we think if it's, if it's just if God can help us be a better person, that's what Christianity is about. No, Christianity is giving us a whole new life, completely different from the life that we had before. In Ephesians 2, I want to kind of unpack this really wonderful, powerful section of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is where we're going to be today. And before we can really understand the new life uh, and why we need it, we need to understand kind of the life that we're living right now. And Paul does a wonderful job of explaining to a group of people why they need new life. The Ephesians, or the people who lived in Ephesus, lived in a culture and situation much like what we live in today. Very dark and terrible time. Their culture was open to anything and everything. Nothing was off limits. And then Paul comes in under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and he begins preaching something called transformation. Newness of life, salvation. And many people grabbed onto it. They, they saw it for what it was and they grabbed onto it, but they didn't understand that once they grab onto the new life, the new life grabs on to you. And it wants complete change. So as we build this series and talk about what it means to have new life in Christ and how we're supposed to live that out and be a disciple of his, we need to answer the question, why do we need new life and what does it look like? Join me in Ephesians chapter two, and we're gonna start in verse one. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all too formerly walked, living in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for you have been saved by grace and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." 
For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, that is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Why do I need a new life? Paul begins to unpack this answer and he tells us that we need to be saved. We need to be transformed. And so then the question is, we need to be saved from what? When I talk to people and begin to share the gospel and and use these terms about being saved or being born again, biblical terms, good terms, I can tell they are totally not understanding what I'm talking about. Saved from what? If you ask most people what they think the Christian message is, here's what they think the Christian message is, that you're saved from hell. That's what we're being saved from. And I hope you realize that that's not what we're being saved from. We are not being saved from hell. Hell is just the final destination of those folks who have never been transformed, who have never been saved, who've never been given a new life. That's not what we're saved from. If that's what we were saved from, it would just be fire insurance. We're being saved from something much more terrible in our life. And you may think, well, what's more terrible in hell? the condition of the person who has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because Paul tells us four things about that person. He says that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. He says that you're under the power and influence of Satan, that you're living in and indulging your fleshly desire, and by nature, you're a child of wrath. See, we have misunderstand, misunderstood what it means to be saved. And we think we're being saved from hell. No, that's a destination. That's the destination of those who reject the wonderful gift that Christ has given them. And we're going to talk about that gift in just a minute. But we got to get the bad news first. Because if we don't understand the bad news, we'll never understand the good news. So we're saved from what? We are saved from a life that has separated us from God. We are saved from the sins and rebellion that we have caused in our life. We are saved from the power and influence that Satan has in our life before we become a child of God. And we are saved from this nature that we are born with that causes us to be spiritually dead. That's what we're saved from. So listen, as we work through these things, we are saved from being dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, things are going to be difficult when you're starting off a letter to people to help them understand the predicament they're in. And he says, you are dead. That's, that's a bad prognosis from your doctor, isn't it? I don't know anybody that wants it. Well, doc, what's wrong with me? You're dead. That's a hard position to recover from, isn't it? There's not a whole lot of vaccines. There's not a whole lot of treatment, right? But here's what Paul says. You are dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, it's important that we understand these two words because Paul uses them interchangeably all throughout uh, his writing in, in Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians and Romans. What do they mean? Why is this important? 
Well, sin is an archery term. Sin means to miss the mark. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? We miss the mark all the time. I mean, what really happens if you miss the mark at an archery tournament? You just don't win. So what? Well, it depends on the mark that's been set for you. I grew up in Tennessee and lived in Georgia, lived in the South all my life. And we had very windy country roads that would wind up around the hills and mountains in our area. And here's the problem. If you missed the mark of where the road was, you would fall off the cliff on the mountain and you would die. Missing the mark is big or little depending on the mark that's been set. And so when Paul comes along and tells us that we've missed the mark, he gives us a clear definition of it in Romans 3.23. And here's what he says. All have sinned. All have missed the mark. And what is that? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The mark that God has set for us is right relationship with him. Obedience to him, worship to him, love for him. And in our sin, missing the mark, we've missed all those marks. We've missed them all. And that's a terrible place to be. Because when we miss the mark in sin, it turns into trespass. Trespass means that you've crossed a line. You've stepped over a boundary. I learned a hard lesson about that when I was 12 years old. There was uh, a, a big farm in our neighborhood. It was kind of weird. Every, this one farm had all these subdivisions going up around it. And this one farmer wouldn't sell out. And so um, all these neighborhoods were around it. And the neighborhood kids, we would cut through this guy's farm all the time to get to the next neighborhood. And so me and three of my friends, we were heading over to another friend's house and we were getting ready to hop the fence and we saw a sign that we had never seen before. It said, no trespassing. Never seen it. And then it says, trespass at your own risk. And we laughed and thought, ha ha, we have gone through this field a million times. What could be, what could be so scary? Well, we found out that day because the farmer had put a bull into his field. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but bulls don't like you being where they are. And they will charge at you whether you're wearing red or not. And that bull chased us from one side of the field to the other. Thankfully, I was a lot skinnier and a lot faster in those days. And I had a friend that was pretty slow, and so I knew the bull would get him before he got me. <laughs> but that's what we're looking at. We step over into a boundary that we were never meant to be. And when God says that we've trespassed his commands, what we've done is we've stepped over his goodness and we've stepped into a territory that we shouldn't be. And when we sin, the territory that we step into is death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Paul says you're dead in your sin. You are dead in your trespass. You have missed the mark so bad that you've died. And not only have you missed the mark so bad that you've died, but you have trespassed, you have walked into territory that God doesn't want you to be, and that's death. You're dead in your sin. 
And then he says that not only are you dead in your sin, but you're under the power and influence of Satan. In which you formerly walked, verse 2, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We've passed into this territory where now not only are we living in death, but we are enslaved by death because we've given ourselves over to Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. And here's the reality. We, we walk around thinking that we're in control of our lives before we follow Jesus. We think that we're setting our destiny and we don't recognize that Satan has sold us the greatest lie that he doesn't exist. And yet, He's standing there and he's offering us all these things. He's seducing us with all these things. And we just go from one thing to the next and one thing to the next thinking we are in control of our life when reality is Satan is in full control of our life. And he's leading us on the path to destruction. 2 Corinthians chapter four, Paul tells the Corinthians, listen, You need to understand that Satan is at work and his job is to blind you from the gospel. He's put veils over your eyes so you can't understand the gospel. And when you hear the gospel, it sounds like bad news instead of good news. You're so under the influence of Satan when you hear the goodness and grace of Jesus, you go, ugh, I don't want any of that. Because he's blinded you to the glory of God in the face of Christ. We're under the power and influence of Satan and Satan has this weird dance that he plays with us. He does two things. He seduces and he accuses. He stands and says, hey, I've got what you want. He doesn't look like that stranger on the corner that we used to see in after school specials. I don't know if you grew up with these, but I used to see these all the time when I would come home from school. There'd be some stranger on the corner in a trench coat. He'd be like, psst, come here. I got what you're looking for. He he doesn't show up that way because if he did, we'd run. No, he comes in the form of power and fame and, 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 and pleasure and all these things. You can have what you want and you don't have to worry about it at all. So he seduces us and we bite hook, line, and sinker. And as soon as he gets us on the line, he switches from seduction to accusation and he turns and says, ah, you're guilty. You're guilty. You've committed these things. You are horrible and terrible and nobody will love you and nobody will forgive you. Most of all, God. Don't ever turn to God because he can't love someone and he won't love someone like you. We're the power and influence of Satan. But it's not just the devil made me do it. I don't want to give you the out. Because the reality is when we are living in sin, we are really doing exactly what we want to do. And Paul says that we are living in and living out and indulging our flesh, our desire. Verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature were children of wrath. 
We come to a point because we're dead in our sin and transgression and we're under the power and influence of Satan that we just feel like, hey, I can cut God loose from my life and I can do what I want and I can live how I want and there's no consequences to be paid. That's Romans 1. That's, that's exactly the, 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 the condition that the entire world lives in. We don't not acknowledge God. We don't worship God. We don't live for God. We live for ourselves. We actually do live for our God. It's just not the God of the Bible. We've placed ourselves on the throne. And because of that, we allow things in our life and we tell ourselves this isn't bad. In Romans chapter one, Paul talks about all the sins that separate us from God. And I would tell you that the majority of them, people wouldn't even blink their eyes at. Dishonoring your father and mother. Lying, cheating, greed. People would say, really? That, that's what indulging yourself looks like? Then that's rebellion against God? Come on. But there's a sneakier thing that happens in Romans chapter one. We get it at the end of the chapter in verses 28 through 32. When we indulge ourselves and we make ourselves a God and we live for how we want to live, we, we basically start doing detestable things that God says don't do. And not, not only do we do them, but we think we're okay because we get approval from the world. Doing detestable things before God doesn't become right because they're legal. Doesn't become right because they're supported. Doesn't become right because there's campaigns on television to tell you that they're okay. Doesn't become right because our majority culture says that it is. But we indulge that to the point where we show our true nature. You know, I hear this all the time, and I've even said this until I really dug into our story here, until I really dug into what the scripture says. But I used to say, well, people are just basically good. They're just basically good. We're just born that way. We're just born good. It's the world that corrupts us, and the Bible tells us exactly the opposite. That we're not born good. We're born with an infectious disease called sin. Now, in the Bible, we talk about something called original sin. And there's a big misunderstanding about original sin, and, and people get their hackles up about it. And as soon as I start to talk about it, people are like, uh-uh, I don't want to hear nothing about no original sin. Let me explain original sin. God created Adam and Eve. He created them as a representation of humankind to live and worship with him. He created them perfect, placed them in a perfect environment, gave them perfect opportunities, perfect hearts and minds. And then a choice was given to them. You can eat of every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it ate at him. And it ate at him. And Satan comes along and says, God is withholding something from you. He's not as good as you think he is. He's trying to keep you from being like him. And if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be just like him. And that's not what he wants. 
and they saw that it was good to eat and it was attractive to them to be like God. And here's the, here's the sad thing. Here's the sad thing that the Satan didn't tell them. They were never more like God than they were at that moment. They were perfect. They thought perfectly. They acted perfectly. They lived in harmony with each other and with God. And Satan lied to them. And what they were trying to attain, they already had. So they took and they ate the fruit. And in that moment, they knew good and evil. But here's the problem. The only way that they knew good and evil is because they had committed evil. And in that moment, their eyes were open and they began to look around and they saw the world in a completely different way. It was not the place full of joy and life and hope. Now is a place of scariness and doom and gloom. And you say, well, how do you know that? Look at their response. What's the first thing they do? Try to cover themselves, to cover their shame of what they've just done. God comes to have relationship and what do they do? They run and they hide. There'd never been a word that they'd had called punishment. They didn't know what punishment was, but all of a sudden, now that they knew evil, now that they experienced evil, what are they afraid of? We're afraid that God is going to punish us. And in that moment, they opened up something, opened up the door to something that hadn't existed to that point. You know what it is? Death. Death did not exist. Death was not going to exist because they were going to live in the presence of God forever, but they opened up the door through sin. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that Adam and Eve sinned and death spread to all men because all men have sinned. Now, here's the problem that people have with original sin. Here's what people say all the time. I can't be guilty for what someone else did. You're right. God does not hold you guilty for what Adam did. But what God is trying to say is that you're not as good as you think you are. That when you are born, you're born with an infectious disease called sin and death. You can't help it. Parents, you know this is true. Do you have to teach your children how to be bad? Do you have to? Do you have to teach them to say mean things to their brothers and sisters? Do you have to teach them to punch each other when they don't get their way? No, what do you have to teach them? Be nice, be kind, share. Why is that? Because that infectious disease shows up in our nature. And that's what he says, you're by nature children of wrath. Now, you may not like it, but here's the reality. You are not guilty for Adam's sin, but you're impacted by it. You're affected by it. And being by nature a child of wrath means this. When you are born, you are born spiritually dead. You are incapable of having a relationship with God. Because the God that you want to worship is you. And the God that you want to please is you. And the God that you want to serve is you. Do you see that we're saved from something much worse than hell? If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is 
you. Paul just painted an accurate portrait of who you are. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit's words. This is what you look like. But here's the question. We're not going to end in despair. We're going to end in hope because that's the message of the gospel. We hear the bad news to hear the good news. But here's the question. How does God save us if it is as bad as this? How? How does God save us as this, if this is the predicament that we're in, that we're spiritually dead? We're incapable of doing anything for ourselves. Even the good that we do is marred by sin. That we're just indulging ourselves and worshiping ourselves and we're under the power and control of the devil and, and that we're dead in our sin and trespass. How does he save us? Well, listen. Verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. How does he do it? He does it. He saves us by his grace and his mercy. Now again, two terms that we use a whole lot, that we sing about, that we use in our prayers, but what does it really mean? What does grace really mean? What does mercy really mean? He saves us by his grace and his mercy. Well, here it is. Mercy is withholding deserved punishment. Mercy is not saying, okay, I'm gonna pretend like that you didn't do anything wrong or we're just gonna wipe the slate king. That's what a lot of people say. He's God, he can just forget it. No, mercy doesn't forget it. Mercy calls it what it is and then says, I don't wanna punish you for it. Mercy is withholding punishment that you deserve. An easier way to say it is, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Giving undeserved favor. An easier way to say it is this, getting what you don't deserve. How does God save us? He saves us by his mercy and his grace. God in his infinite wisdom and his justice says this, listen, you deserve punishment. You deserve hell. That's the destination you deserve. But in my mercy, I don't want you to, I don't want to give you that. So I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Instead, I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. And what is it? What is it that we don't deserve? A gift. Not just any gift, but the greatest gift ever. Verse six, he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. 
God in his grace has given us the greatest gift and that's Jesus. Here's what he says. Your predicament is so bad. You are so lost. You are so incapable of saving yourself that I have to come. I have to be born as a human to live for you because you can't. So God demonstrated his love for us and his mercy and grace to us by sending Jesus to become truly man. 100% God, 100% man. So that he would experience every temptation, every suffering, every trial that we experience except without sin. So that he could live a sinless and perfect life on my behalf and on your behalf and on everybody's behalf. And he would fill up righteousness for us, not for himself. All so that he could stand in our place. He stood in our place in life. He stood in our place in death. God laid on him the sin, the iniquity, and the transgression of us all. Now, there's a powerful phrase in here that's the sticking point between us and every other world religion. You know what it is? It's grace, not works. It's grace, not works. Every other world religion is some form of works-based religion. It's ritual, it's sacrifice, it's prayers, it's money, it's education, it's service, all in the hopes that you can wipe out your debt. And even the people in those works-based religions will tell you there's no guarantee well, we can't guarantee that you're going to do enough good to outweigh the bad that you do, so you just got to work really, really, really hard. And then Christianity comes along and says, you can't work hard enough. You can't work long enough. You can't do enough. And so I'm going to give you a gift of grace. I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. I'm going to wipe your debt clean. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to forgive you fully and freely. And you don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. And what I find funny is in this culture of we want everything free. We want education for free. We want universal income for free. We want everything for free. And yet God comes along and says, here is the gift and it's free. And we say, no, thanks. No, thanks. I didn't earn it. You say I don't deserve it. I don't want it. You'll take health care. You'll take higher wages. You'll take free college, but you won't take free grace because you didn't deserve it and you didn't earn it. It's a gift from God. And in that gift, God makes us spiritually alive in Jesus. Look at what it says. Verse four, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Remember how we were before? We were dead. Spiritually dead. 
incapable of having a relationship to God, and now we are spiritually alive. When we come to faith in Jesus, when we recognize the gift of grace that God has given us and we embrace that, when we embrace that in that moment, God makes us alive. God makes us a new person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But even more than that, Galatians 2, 20 tells us, I have been crucified in Christ and therefore I no longer live, but the life that I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. New life comes at a cost. And the cost is that person that we talked about in the first three verses has to die. God isn't interested in behavior change. God isn't interested in a better version of you. God wants to transform you with new life. He wants to make you a completely new person. Created in Christ Jesus. And God secures our relationship with him forever. This isn't a one-off deal. This isn't a deposit. This isn't an installation process, installment process, where God gives you a little bit of salvation as you go along, and hopefully you do enough stuff to earn the entire thing. No, God secures your relationship to him by giving you everything that you need the moment that you cry out to Jesus. You get all the Holy Spirit you'll ever need. You get all the forgiveness you'll ever need. You get all the grace that you'll ever need as a gift. You don't have to ask for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. He gives it. It's a gift. And because it's a gift, no one can boast. Listen to what it says. Verse eight, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. No one can boast about being saved by God. Why? We didn't do anything. We didn't ask for it. We didn't accomplish it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. God gave it as a gift of mercy and grace. So there's nothing to brag about, about yourself. There's a lot to brag about on God. When we come to faith in Christ, it should be bragging on God and we should say something like this. There's nothing about me that God should love, but he loves me anyway. Nothing. There's nothing about me. There's nothing special. There's nothing holy. There's nothing worth it in me. And yet God loved me anyway. And I've given God a million billion reasons not to love me, not to save me, not to hang in there with me, but he's never given up on me and he saved me and transformed me. God saved me when nobody else would. You ever thought about that? Anybody else had been in charge of salvation? Do you realize that you wouldn't have been on the list? I wouldn't have been on the list. 
And yet God saved me. God saved you when nobody else would. So he tells us what we've been saved from. He tells us how we've been saved. And then this is the question that we're gonna unwrap for the rest of this series. What did he save us for? What did he save us for? Verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What did God save us for? To show off his workmanship. I'm not a handy person. I I can't build things with my hands. I am worse than Tim Taylor um, on the Tool Time show. If I can break it, burn it, blow it up, that's my specialty. But you can see the quality of the workman by his workmanship. That's why when we see someone who can craft things and, and we see the beauty and the, and the, and the, the durability and all these kind of things, we, we pay exorbitant amounts of money for it because we see the workmanship. Here's what God says. I've saved you from your sin, your trespass, the influence, the power, the indulgence to show off my workmanship. It's kind of what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, this is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am the worst. And if Christ and his patience can save me, it's an example to you who struggle with sin that he'll save you too. We are God's workmanship. It's an example for the world to see this is how powerful, this is how amazing, this is how loving and kind and compassionate God really is that he can take up ruined and rotten sinner and change them from the inside out and make them new. Listen, what has God saved you for? One thing he saved you for is to put your life on display so that the world can see what he's done through you. He wants to show off. Now I know that when we use that term, people say, well, that's wrong. God shouldn't wanna show off. Why? He's the best at what he does. He ain't lying when he says he's the best. What did he save us for? To be created in Christ Jesus. To be put back to the way that we were before. See, we were created to look like Jesus. We were created to be in his image and to live like him and to walk like him and to talk like him. And so here's what God does. He comes back and he restores us to how he's created us. Now, unfortunately, We're gonna have to see that moment by moment and minute by minute and day by day and year by year and decade by decade until Christ comes. We will not see what we are until we see him face to face. And here's the power and security you need to have. That moment when you see Jesus face to face, you are gonna reflect back to him a perfect reflection of himself. I can't think of a better gift to have in heaven than to stand in the presence of Jesus and shine him back to him. 
And here's the reality. We're not going to do that because we're special and holy and better than everybody else. We're going to do that because that's what God created us to do. The only reason we'll do it is because God has done it in us. So we're created for good works. Now, don't get weird when we talked about a minute ago, it's by faith and not works. This is not undoing all that. Here's what he's saying. When you become alive in Christ and all of a sudden you're spiritually awake, things happen and things change. And what happens is you cannot hide the fact that you are now new. And the newness of your life wants to go out into the world to reach those who are dead. That's how it works. He's created you for good work. And the good work is to be alive in the spirit under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit, living out the Spirit's commands in our life and showing that we are by nature children of God. This is where we start, new life. And the question is, do you have it? Have you been given new life? Notice I said given because that's the thing only God can give it. You can't be baptized into it. You can't have a church say some things over you. You don't get it when you sign on the dotted line for church membership. It only comes when you come to the recognition of who you are before Jesus. A sinner. A sinner. Separated from God. And the only hope that you have is placing your faith and trust in the gift of mercy and grace that's been given to you. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, you don't have new life. But you can today. In just a moment, we're going to play what we call the hymn of invitation. It's an invitation for you to come and respond to what you've heard today. And your response needs to be this. I am a sinner. I need to be saved. God save me. And he will. Maybe you're here today and you've experienced new life in Christ, but what you haven't experienced is the good works flowing from you, through you, into the world. Maybe it's time to surrender your life to the Holy Spirit and let him lead you. Maybe it's time to join our church family and, and use that as an expression to use the gifts that God's given you. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what new life looks like and what new life requires from us. My prayer is that your heart will be open and you'd be ready to receive the new life that God's given you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift of mercy and grace. And we thank you that you allow us to respond in faith to you. So, Father, I pray right now, as your spirit is moving and calling, may we say yes. To receive new life for the first time, to be washed clean by our new life for the millionth time, to say yes to new life and service to you, whatever it is, give us the grace to step out and respond. We ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. It's in his name we pray. Amen.